Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Alonzo Felder, author of the book Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skinfolk, kinfolk, and village folk. This is 1904. A black farmer is shot and killed by the white next-door neighbor, and the local authorities just were going to brush this off as justifiable homicide. We'll discuss American Gothic churches in Florida. Built in the late 19th century, they were primarily constructed by New Englanders who wintered in Florida. And talk about Everglades National Park. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Alonzo Felder is author of the book Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skinfolk, kinfolk, and village folk, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. The Reverend A.S.J. Allen was a respected African-American community leader in Alachua County, Florida. In 1904, he was killed by a white neighbor over a property border dispute. Alonzo Felder is the great-grandson of A.S.J. Allen, but he never heard much about his ancestor growing up. I heard almost nothing about him. As I was growing up as a, a kid, I lived in the house with my grandmother and my mother. Grandma had a picture on her dresser that I literally saw every day of, of my life. And it was of her dad, of ASJ. And I had asked a couple of times, you know, hey, who's this? And she would say, oh, this is my daddy. Where is he? And it was crickets. All I ever knew was he was killed over some form of racial violence, but we just don't talk about it. When Alonzo Felder's mother became ill and then died in the late 1990s, he felt the need to research his family history. Felder's mother was an only child. She turned 40 just after he was born, so all of Felder's relatives were much older. His closest relatives were the siblings of his grandmother. So I spent a lot of my years growing up going to funerals of people who passed away in the family. And the funerals were always at the Mount Nebo Methodist Church Cemetery there in Alachua. It seemed like no matter where people lived, what state, country, wherever they dispersed, they always came back to be buried at Mount Nebo. So when mom passed away, I was feeling very much alone, very disconnected from family. So I took a road trip to Mount Nebo and uh, went with a friend of mine and we connected with some of my relatives there, but I went up, uh, took photographs of tombstones, um, just took notes and started trying to connect with the people that created me. And then I got home and I did what 
every 20th century person does when they want to find wise and sage information. I asked Mr. Google. Felder's Google search of his great-grandfather's name, A.S.J. Allen, brought him to the book Emancipation Betrayed by Dr. Paul Ortiz, who is professor of history at the University of Florida and director of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program. The quote from the book said that J.L. Shaw, a black farmer, had been killed by his white neighbor, A.S.J. Allen. And I immediately went, oh no, that's backwards. We, we got to fix this. So um, that was sort of a, a shocker, but that shocked me enough to contact Dr. Ortiz. We talked, we became best of friends, really. And uh, that started a relationship of me doing even more research. Felder discovered that A.S.J. Allen was so well-respected in his community that African-Americans in Alachua County actively sought justice for his killing. This is 1904. A black farmer is shot and killed by the white next-door neighbor, and the local authorities just were going to brush this off as justifiable homicide. Business as usual, nothing to see here, move along. That did not happen, and that astounded me. Uh, I found newspaper clippings of Negroes push the case uh, was one headline. And I learned that the community around my great-grandfather came together, hired two attorneys, one in Gainesville, one from, from Jacksonville, and took this thing to court basically said, you've crossed a line. You can't just keep doing this and getting away with it. No more. Although it was a victory that the case even made it to a courtroom, this was Jim Crow era Florida, and A.S.J. Allen's white neighbor suffered no consequences for killing him. Still, Alonzo Felder was inspired by the story. It then became more than just, I'm feeling lonely and disconnected and an orphan for my own family. I want to find out who in the world is this character, because I know that if you, as a Black person, especially early 1900s, you rub up against and buck against the status quo, your town can be burned down, your neighborhood is gone, you're, you're, you're kicked out of your house. You, there's all sorts of retribution, and it just piqued my interest to find out what kind of character is this that the, he so emboldened a community of poor farmers to come together and, and risk so much to say no? So that's, that's kind of what got me started. Discovering A.S.J. Allen, a story of skinfolk, kinfolk, and village folk, can be seen as three books in one. The story of A.S.J. Allen is told throughout. It also describes Alonzo Felder's personal journey of self-discovery. By sharing his research process, Felder also provides a practical guidebook for others seeking to discover the stories of their ancestors. The reason I did that and why that's important to me is we are, in the last decade especially, we're experiencing this upheaval in interest for genealogical research and family history story. Uh, there's so many television shows on family magazines and, and pamphlets coming out where people are discovering who their ancestors were and finding out more about them. And one of the things that I note 
is that a lot of this seems to be very celebrity oriented, which is great. I mean, that's that's it makes for great television and no shade on on, on the celebrities. But one of the, the things that I've noticed is that you have, say, an hour long program with 30 minutes worth of commercials. And by the end of the show, you are presented with this document that tells you your family history all the way back to Charlemagne or, you know, Jesus or something, you know, extraordinary. And it kind of leaves you with a sense of, wow, this is pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy to do. And it's fairly quick. And I buck against that because I love research. This book took me over 10 years to write. I didn't know I was writing a book. I was just doing the work, but it's over 10 years worth of work involved here. And I want people to understand that when you decide to dig into family story, there's a lot involved. It's not quick. It's not easy. And you really have to be okay with this is going to take a while and it's going to be somewhat frustrating. And I wanted to kind of create the book in a way that outlines, here's what you're getting yourself into. Felder says that despite the challenges involved in researching and documenting family history, it's rewarding work. The subtitle of Discovering A.S.J. Allen is A Story of Skinfolk, Kinfolk, and Village Folk. The term skinfolk was popularized by Zora Neale Hurston when she wrote, All my skinfolk ain't kinfolk, meaning that all black people are not related and have different opinions and experiences. Felder encourages people to find their own unique family stories. Kinfolk refers to family, of course, but Felder hopes that people doing family research will think beyond biological relatives. When I look at the 1930 census of the house that I grew up in, so I've got my mom, my grandmother, and throughout the Depression, grandma used our house as a boarding house, and it helped a lot of people sort of get through some very hard times. Listed in the boarders that lived in our house is a woman that I grew up with that I always knew as Aunt Rose. I was an adult, graduated from college, one day sitting in her living room talking when I discovered that Aunt Rose was really not my aunt. There is no biology between us, but she grew up, or at least she lived in the house. And when I came along, that was my aunt. And she was just as much a relative as any of ASJ's children were to me. Most people are familiar with the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. Felder says the idea of village folk goes even further. None of us grow up and live in a vacuum. We're, we're surrounded by people who are neither skin folk nor kin folk, but they are a part of our story. And in the case of ASJ Allen, I look at the community around him, the people that he ministered to as, as a pastor, the people he performed marriages for, the lawyers that were hired, the fraternal organizations that, that came and just showed up when the need arose. So those are the, the folks in the village. 
Felder's book provides us all with important information about an insufficiently documented part of Florida history and offers inspiration and guidance to those seeking to find their own family stories. Felder says his book has been well-received by his extended family. The emails and phone calls that I've been getting have been absolutely wonderful of thank you for telling the story. Thank you for researching the story, because a lot of my family, we knew pieces of the puzzle, but no one had ever put it all together. So uh, I've got family that still live in the Alachua County area, and they knew little pieces of, of what had happened, but that whole experience of trauma was such that, well, this is hurtful, this is painful, and we don't really want to go there. So they weren't getting all the story. And then other people who lived further away, we knew what we'd been told and what we, what we heard from, from elders in the family, but that was incomplete. So folks have been really appreciative of me trying to put it all together. Alonzo Felder is author of the book, Discovering A.S.J. Allen, A Story of Skinfolk, Kinfolk, and Village Folk, published by Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers. That's myfloridahistory.org. There's a place dear to me where I'm longing to be With my friends at the old country church Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, most people have a general idea about what Florida architecture is, but their perceptions might not include buildings in what is known as the American Gothic or Carpenter Gothic style. You're so right about that. The words American Gothic conjure up images of Grant Wood's 1930 painting of a farmer and his wife stoically standing in front of their Gothic-style farmhouse. Not exactly a Sunshine State scene. But a trip into the Florida countryside can provide you with a view of some of the most beautiful American Gothic churches in America. A 2012 article by Jack C. Lane, Professor Emeritus from Rollins College, identifies more than 30 such structures across Florida, and he admits there may be others he did not include in his research. Built in the late 19th century, they were primarily constructed by New Englanders who wintered in Florida. Most of the churches were erected by Episcopalians, though a few were constructed by congregations of Presbyterians and Disciples of Christ. When most people think of Gothic churches, they probably envision massive stone buildings with soaring ceilings and flying buttresses, but that's not what we find in rural Florida communities, right? No, we don't. But the stone edifices are related to the white wooden churches in the Florida countryside in interesting and important ways. The 19th century Gothic revival movement that emerged in the United States 
was a reflection of the European Romantic pushback against the Age of Enlightenment, with its focus on science and industry and an architectural commitment to ancient Greek designs with massive columns, classical capitals, and a stolid appearance, an architectural type that came to be called Georgian. By the early 19th century, English religious leaders had come to see this style of building as unconnected to Christianity. Seeking their religious roots, they looked to the medieval parish church as the model best suited for conveying both the history of Christianity and the majesty of God. In promoting the beauty of the parish church, they were also rejecting the plain church of the Puritans and Calvinists, while distinguishing themselves from Catholics with their soaring cathedrals. When the Gothic revival crossed the Atlantic, it shifted focus from the centuries-old parish churches to the construction of new church buildings for congregants establishing new farms and towns. There were examples of massive Gothic revival churches in the U.S. Trinity Church in New York City was completed in 1846 by architect Richard Upjohn. Upjohn, who had emigrated from Shaftesbury, England in 1829, became identified as the father of American Gothic revival. His contribution was not confined to the construction of large urban churches, but in many ways was made by his creation and promotion of an American or carpenter Gothic design, a design that incorporated Gothic elements with American construction materials and reliance on self-taught carpenters. Professor Lane acknowledges the majesty of Upjohn's urban churches, but states that his most original legacy to church architecture was his contribution to the construction and spread of the Gothic style to America's rural countryside. Connie, how did small frontier or rural congregations learn about this style of construction, and what changes in building techniques enabled them to embrace the design? Lane credits Upjohn's understanding of the limitations faced by poor congregations and two construction innovations that were making their way across America in the 19th century for the spread of the Gothic church design. As Lane notes, quote, Upjohn was alert to the difficulty people in rural villages experienced in funding church construction, end quote. Therefore, he substituted wood for brick and stone, and he designed plans that could be executed by local carpenters and could be adapted to local needs. At the same time, Upjohn's Gothic Revival churches were being designed, changes in all building construction were underway, particularly in the availability of wire nails and then the use of balloon frame construction techniques. In 1852, Upjohn published a book, Rural Architecture, that included 22 detailed plates with plans for Gothic churches. As Lane writes, he specified the exact size, how many timbers were needed and how to lay joints, how to build a lectern, and how to construct doors. He even identified the color paint to use. It's interesting that this architectural style would become a part of Florida history. Well, that is the result of the winter tourism from New England and New York during the period 1870 to 1900. Lane claims that town building was a key feature of the northern colonization of Florida, and churches were one of the first buildings these pious late Victorians constructed, often building churches before they constructed stores. 
If a single person can be considered responsible for the proliferation of Gothic churches in Florida, it would be the Florida Episcopal Diocese's second bishop, John Freeman Young. He came to Florida in 1867 after having served as assistant rector of Trinity Church in New York and becoming acquainted with Richard Upjohn. Young's first opportunity to build a carpenter Gothic church came in 1870 when Henry Sanford set aside land for an Episcopal church in his newly platted town on the banks of Lake Monroe. Holy Cross Church was completed in 1873. In 1881, Young oversaw the construction of St. Luke's Church in Orlando. According to Lane, in Cocoa, he secured an axe and helped the congregation clear the land for their church. In all, 60 carpenter Gothic churches were built in Florida, including Ocoee Christian Church, St. Gabriel's in Titusville, St. Mark's in Palatka, Grace Episcopal in Port Orange, and Altamont Chapel in Altamont Springs. As Phoebe Stanton wrote in her 1968 book on the Gothic Revival, there were many small wooden churches inspired by or built by Upjohn designs that are modest but important. They record the moment when American builders and architects, while improvising upon a foreign style and that ideas that came with it, displayed their capacity to comprehend aesthetic principles and repeat, not correct detail, but the essential construction and spatial truths of the style in which they were working. As you travel the back roads of Florida and happen upon one of the 30 or so remaining Gothic churches, reflect upon the faith and innovation that enable the construction of these little architectural jewels. And it's a lot of fun to come across these American Gothic churches when you're traveling through Florida. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. How I long once more to be with my friends at the old country church. This is Florida Frontiers. Chris Willem is author of a book on Everglades National Park. Holly Baker has more. Dr. Chris Willem is an environmental historian and associate professor of history at the College of Coastal Georgia in Brunswick. He's also the author of the 2022 book, From Swamp to Wetland, The Creation of Everglades National Park. Before the park's creation, the Everglades were seen as a swamp unfit for recreation or development. This is a book about the creation of Everglades National Park, and the central argument is really embedded in the title, From Swamp to Wetlands. And I'm not using those terms in a scientific sense, I'm using them sort of in a popular sense. Popularly, swamps are negative landscapes, places we don't like, decried. We want to drain the swamp, right? That's what you do to swamps. You get rid of their places full of mosquitoes and snakes and swamp miasma. And a wetland, in contrast, is something positive. It's a biological treasure trove. And so this process of creating Everglades National Park was really a process of rethinking our ideas about wetlands, but also rethinking our ideas about nature in total. In the early 20th century, people began to recognize the Everglades as an ecologically valuable wetland in need of protective status. 
In the 1920s and 1930s, conservationists Ernest Coe and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas led the campaign to create a national park in the Everglades. Congress passed legislation to create Everglades National Park in 1934, but because of difficulties acquiring land, it wasn't established until 1947. This really is a key moment in the emergence of modern environmentalism. This is really the first major environmental campaign where activists are centering ecology, the science of ecology, the insights of ecology, really centering, you know, ideas about biocentric ethics, kind of talking about ideas, you know, every species has a right to exist, every species should be able to exist. It really breaks a lot of grounds within the national park system. So if you think about national parks, most national parks are geological. They protect magnificent, sublime scenery. The Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Yosemite, these are just magnificent geological formations. And the Everglades, by contrast, is flat. It's like six feet above sea level. There's nothing geological about it. But its value is biological. It's, it's, it's got a biological value. Park advocates talked about protecting alligators and snakes. But the idea is every life form will be protected in this park. As Dr. Chris Willem explains, the establishment of Everglades National Park helped to redefine Florida's identity as the Sunshine State. A lot of the story is, is also connected to some of the themes in, in some of my other work about sort of Florida's identity and how the identity and the economy of Florida are all connected to nature. You know, the, the, the tourist economy, the fishing, the snowbirds. People come to Florida because of the natural environment. And so the creation of the park in 47 is sort of an attempt to bolster that reputation of Florida as a tourist attraction, Florida with amazing nature. Come to Florida and come see the alligators and come see the orchids in Everglades National Park. So, you know, early on, the park, I think, is much more of a sort of biological environmental focus. And sort of after World War II, you kind of get this additional motive or becomes it becomes more prominent of, of sort of economic development through environmental preservation, which is really interesting. I think something that Florida sort of struggles with today. Do we want to develop the state Yes, but we need to do it in an environmentally responsible way because that's the reason people come here, for the environment. And so the, the Everglades National Park really, in a way, was the first big tourist attraction in the states that was really used to kind of create this, this identity of Florida as the sunshine state, Florida as a tourist destination. The creation of Everglades National Park was seen as a watershed moment in the conservation movement that would inspire more environmental protection and increase tourism in the state. It was really hoped that the creation of this park would lead to additional tourist facilities opening up, and it did. Not to the extent people wanted it to. I think people were really envisioning the Everglades as having an impact sort of like Disney World had. And it sort of didn't have that big an impact, but it still did have this enormous impact in redefining the state in this sort of more positive way after World War II, rather than a sort of backward looking, you know, if you think about Florida in the context of maybe uh, the Civil War and, and Southern history, I think Everglades National Park was an attempt to sort of pull Florida away from that 
and put it more in the mainstream of the United States. This is a biological park. It's a forward-looking park. We're moving forward into the future. We're not looking backwards anymore. And so I think it really has a big effect on, on Florida's identity as well. Today, Everglades National Park is teeming with plant and animal species not found anywhere else in the world. Its unique ecosystem makes the Everglades National Park one of the most visited parks in the United States. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.